Mushroom, this is some of my best work. I'm music and culture journalist Jane Rocker. We invite artists and creators to nominate some of their best work, tell the story of how it came about and how it's influenced their career. Hayley Mary, lead singer of the Jezebels, speaks to me about A Little Piece as some of her best work, taken from their third EP back in 2010. the Jezebels, Haley's been working on a solo career with her second album, The Drip, which is out now. But let's get to Haley and her recollections of A Little Piece. She's as open as any guest we've had on the show and goes into some great detail about the band's history. This Australian quartet became known for its empowering indie pop, comprising of Haley Mary, Samuel Lockwood, pianist and guitarist Heather Shannon and drummer Nick Haloper. They formed at the University of Sydney. Although Haley and Samuel knew each other previously, having both grown up in Byron Bay. I chose this one because obviously it's a Jezebel song from many years ago now, but it was, I think, in some ways a first kind of breakthrough song and I got the impression it would be interesting to include something that had a kind of a bit of a moment to it career-wise or whatever but it was picked up on a video that went viral like a mountain biking video in Scotland and it kind of just had a life of its own and in a week it had like 30 million views or something so when we went overseas we're like oh people know this song and so it kind of because it wasn't a single but it had this resonance I guess it's a favorite yeah in that way yeah a b-side yeah what's that one that Elton Elton John did um your song, I think, was a B-side oh. and it was really yeah. successful. It's not yeah. quite as successful as that. But it's, but, it's up there. <laughs> yeah, so I'm fond of, yep. you know, the underdog yep. and it's a popular underdog. I would have been still at uni and the rest of the band would have been or, or just out of uni, all of us, and um, just starting to kind of be- get a bit of momentum touring. I think the thing I remember most about the EP era of writing in, in all of our EPs but it's very noticeable in this song as well, is um, just the kind of the lack of bass. I mean, we, we, did, we didn't get a bass player until quite recently in live stuff, but we learned to, like, use production techniques later on and, like, that kind of thing. But the early stuff is very us accommodating for a lack of bass in, um, in the way the guys played. So... There's a lot of Tommy dramatic, like deep drums and the piano is really low and the guitar, well, the guitar has some nice high riffs as well, but they're kind of always accommodating or compensating, I suppose, for this lack of bass, which I think is what gives it a bit of a unique sound in those early days. Um, And I think maybe it was also what I like about this song is one of our weird time signature ones. It's not that weird. It's like three, four or something. But that was a bit of an influence of our drummer, Nick. Yeah. Um, and the Celtic kind of tragic uh, epicness of it all uh, 
which we were very into in those days as well. Uh, those are the things I remember the most about it. But um, lyrically, I think it was I was obviously going through some kind of breakup. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny looking back. I listened to it for the first time and probably since it came out and was like. I remember that frame of mind I was in and how much I've changed since then, my view of love. It's less Shakespearean and dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, it's been nice actually going back and going, what do I remember about writing this song? Uh, It's also another thing I think I can see upon reflection is the kind of the David Lynch effect there and the cherry pie reference, the like gothic poppiness of it all, which was definitely an influence on like so many bands in those days, yeah. but also us. And so as far as it being some of your best work, what do you think it nails that you've carried forward in all of your songwriting since, do you think? Definitely all of my Jezebel songwriting. There's a few songs on the EPs that do this. I never really sang high until I played with Nick because Nick's – a metal thrash drummer. By well, he he grew up in marching bands. Like he's not a pop drummer. He's a really active drummer. And so when it goes to like he's doing all the Tommy stuff in the verses, and it's really you know there's a lot of momentum to it, but it doesn't kind of clash with the vocals ever. And so there's a sparseness to the other melodic instruments because he's down there. But when it goes to the chorus and it gets thrashy and cymbally. I often found that I needed to project a lot higher than a normal indie singer maybe would to kind of feel like I was serving that epicness. So I think I discovered falsetto singing through playing these kinds of songs with mm. a particularly Nick. So, yeah, it was um, – I think I've ta- carried that on because I, I would often write songs that I couldn't sing and then – learn to sing them yeah (laughs) because I felt it suited the band it's not always right particularly in my solo stuff now I feel like I'm actually better off going lower or going for a more consistent less sort of what's the word bipolar for want of a better word like low high low high yeah it was often low high low high but that was a technique I used for a long time and still do sometimes that kind of different voices which I think was brought about by songs like this just having to do that to to write anything over it or to feel like I was going to do the song justice. You said you just sort of maybe come out of uni as well, yeah? There's a, there was a crossover period there where we were starting to tour a lot and getting supports and stuff and I was finishing uni. I think probably that influenced some of the the themes that were very prevalent in Jezebel's years of writing that I still can't seem to get out of. Like not so much – okay, let me word this correctly. Feminism was an interest. It wasn't always something I was peddling. I think that was a misunderstanding that is, you know, probably understandable in, in the time is that it was like girly band called Girly Name speaking about feminism. They're obviously strict feminists you know, wearing black and Doc Martens. But it was never really like that for me. It was always a quite a contradictory kind of exploration of the themes of of the sometimes harsh and sometimes illuminating mistress that could be feminism. Like I, it's like she's like an ideal, you know, and sometimes you don't meet them and then sometimes they make your life really hard. I still don't have a very clear view on feminism or or I don't particularly 
know if I'm pro or, you know, it's a multifaceted thing. So I think that's that you can see that in this song if you go into the lyrics. There's a lot of like back and forthing about this kind of the sacrifices I felt it required to be a strong woman or whatever. As you say, this toing and froing, but it begins very romantically with this sense of this relationship is just lighting up everything from what's happening between us to what's happening on the street. But then we quickly go to like a complete opposite vibe as well, where the woman's really wanting something, but the guy's not really acknowledging it. He's a bit scared of the love. Yeah. I mean, look, I never knew what songs were about until about two years later. My perception of this one is kind of that predicament. There's a catch-22 in the idea of like the first verse is like there's a cold, easy glow dancing over our street. It's like that feeling when you know a new era is coming and you're like it's there's a change of foot. And I was in a long-distance relationship at this time and I feel like long-distance relationships, particularly if you're an emotional uh, musician, tend to have this way of making everything feel a bit Shakespearean. <laughs> it's, so, it's quite a dramatic feeling. I was kind of aware that a change was afoot and then I was in this catch-22 of like knowing that I could – keep the relationship alive but it would require a weakening in my resolve to do things in my own life and it wasn't particularly that person's fault it's just I think maybe that was the is this what feminism makes me do kind of question but you know maybe it was maybe it was the relationship I don't know but my pondering was that I was taught by a feminist teacher once who said like all you girls will find it too hard to find a partner because men don't like strong, clever women. And I was like, I I wonder how much I've let that manifest or how much she's right. And that's always the predicament. It's like, am I projecting this (laughs) or is she right? And I don't know. But these days I feel less so that she's right and more so that I was projecting it. But, you know, these days things have changed. So she might have been more right in the past. Yep. It's always that funny thing. Yeah, that's right. She it? probably there was an element of truth to that for sure, yeah. and so still probably, is. You probably know, still is. There's guys that would avoid it altogether. Yeah. Because, but so this is the long distance relationship, though, that you think now, like upon reflection, that it was about that relationship. Well, I think maybe. that it was about that partly, and I also think it was about. I was thinking about the kaleidoscope, kaleidoscope dream line, and I think that is a little bit of a trying to trying to reach for a non idea a non-conventional ideal life and realising that that does actually mean giving up some of the conventional comforts of the non-kaleidoscope dream, yeah. <laughs> whatever that is, the the narrow vision or whatever. So I suppose it was just like, oh, I've chosen this path, these are the sacrifices kind of thing. And maybe that was in partly in his nature as well but – the more I think about it, the more responsible I feel for it. But, you know, life's hard. <laughs> yeah. Choices are always hard. So this song comes a year before then Prisoner is released and that's the successful record that gets... Yeah, well, that's you know, the first that's, album. Yeah. Everything else to then was EPs because we were independent so we kind of needed to yep. build momentum and um, not blow all our... All of <laughs> which were just... It was actually just scholarship money that we used to get because we were all regional, so we got some money from, you know, being from the country. I don't know yeah. why they do that, but I guess it's a disadvantage in some views. But, yeah, so we all just spent that money on and, and some bank loans that we got to raise funds for all these recordings, and then they kind of started paying off. So we were like, okay, 
we can do an album now. We can afford it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so expensive. Or they were in those days at least. Yeah. Absolutely. If you don't know how to record yourself in a bedroom. I thought even talking about being in a studio recording the song and, and what was happening? Was it? Can you remember it happening in a take? Did the song come together very quickly? No, well, it was obviously it was written over a few periods. I mean, look, yeah. I don't remember exactly. I, I yeah. seem to remember and I could be inaccurate. And I, I messaged the guys today going like, do you guys remember anything about <laughs> this? And the one thing they said, all they gave me was, I think we put bongos on that, which is really weird because all we wanted to be was like not Byron. <laughs> But the bongos kind of worked in a bit of a Britpop way. But I don't think you can hear them all that well. But I remembered, I think that the riff was the original starting point of it. Sam often had like ideas that would be the springboard. He'd come with a riff or a chord progression or whatever. I think that riff, the opening riff was the start. And then, and that's in 3-4. So that obviously excited Nick. And so... So a song was born and I think Heather basically, because she's obviously, like I said, quite a good pianist. She's not actually just like a rock keyboardist. She did a really good job in kind of providing a bass line that was like chords but also had a melody kind of built into it, that descending kind of thing. Mm. And so that's probably roughly where I got the chorus feeling from was them just going down, down, down over and over again but we used to just just jam like over and over something until I came up with something and then I'd be like that's the chorus okay that's the verse it was always a collaborative thing of people coming up with their own parts but often because the singer has some kind of weird I need to love it otherwise I'm not going to sing it all that well I think people often kind of acquiesce to their requests because they're like this is how I'm going to believe in it. So I would often kind of help them with the structure and that kind of thing, but they'd be coming up with their own parts. There was an Ebo in the recording. I remember that. They were like the droney verse. I'd like to um, acknowledge Who Let the Dogs Out as a reference also. Yeah, okay, that's right. Which I'm really glad that – who was that by? Who, who let, let the, the dogs out? Ooh. But I know it. Anyway, that made it in as a quote – in the who let the girl out, let the dog out. And I, I don't know if anyone ever really picked up on that, so I just want everyone to know that. And uh, <laughs> and um, the there's also a reference which you don't get on the internet to Puff the Magic Dragon, which I think is a little bit quaint. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I had the nerve to mention Honolly in a song, but um, in like a really serious way and I like scream it. It's quite funny. <laughs> I think it represented the ideal world and when you realise it's a lie, then you might have this real world love to fall back on and so that was the, um, the back and forth thing. <laughs> Some of my best work also falls under the influences that led to some of that best work. So what do you think you might have been observing outside of making that song that was happening at that time? Well, the Jezebels have always been one of those bands that never really... We had a very slim crossover in taste and when things worked it was because all of the elements were kind of allowed to have their outlet in this three to seven minutes, however long some of our songs are. 
And it wasn't. It doesn't always work, and it's kind of a weird miracle when it does because, like, Heather's a classically trained pianist who was actually meant to go to, like, the well, she went to the comedy, she was meant to go and be a concert pianist, and mm. she was she had these views of going to Russia and, you know, intensely playing really complicated music for her life, and we kind of she ended up in this indie pop band, and a similar thing with Nick in that he was, you know really into the mathematics and conceptual side of drumming and all about really complicated rhythms and we kind of crushed him into a pop band as well and then Sam has had mainly like a country kind of folk sort of female singer-songwriter background he's quite a wholesome guy he has a sort of wholesome taste in music and um and I just like 80s pop diva shit and, and Queen and Bowie and like glam. Yeah. So it was a weird fusion. And when it worked, I think it was because there was places in which there was a crossover and it was often in an intellectual way. That sounds really wanky, but like an interest in the Gothic, for example, or an interest in like Celtic melody or it wasn't because we like the same genre. It would be something filmic or there was a couple of bands that were – sort of like Arcade Fire and The National that were kind of social commentary bands that tickled our indie uni student fancies at the time. So I think there was a few influences like that where it was like, well, if this is something we all kind of have in common, then maybe that can be. It was never conscious, but I think it just would be like, you know, what are we, what ideas are people putting forward that other people are liking? Yep. Um, Yeah, so David Lynch probably... There was a Twin Peaks kind of That's revival right. around that time. I don't know why. Yeah. Was, was, there was. I, there yeah, was there Twin was. Peaks. There's they they, re, they Peaks refilmed revival. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was. <laughs> Every day. Now there's a Friends revival. Yeah, right. Oh, God. But Twin Peaks I can take. Like yeah. That's, yeah. It's it was a strange show and it's very yep. histrionic and I think I loved histrionic stuff. I was all, all about the um, like the purposeful melodrama I also loved Kate Bush and the, things like that. So, and The Cure and these kind of big epic, dark, gothic things. So, And in terms of how that song then, as you say, I mean, that's the Jezebels and what you consider some of your best work with the Jezebels, how that's impacted what you do as a solo artist now too. Yeah, obviously the Jezebel, your past is going to be the biggest shaper of your current or future life. So... It's a lot about, well, recognising the strengths of, well, particularly my part in it and also how to make it different and just being a completely different person now. There's just things I just couldn't do again that I was doing then. You know, like reading back, it's like I was so over the top. I mean, that's the coolness of it is like it was authentic. It was like I was an emotional 19-year-old, you know, like they feel a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and they think that they're the first person to discover feeling this way and they've got all the, you know, weight of the world on their shoulders and they're discovering all the isms and all of the, you know, debates and they've got all these – ideologies and possessed with this passion for solving the problems in the world or their own problems but now I have much more knowledge of what I don't know (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so I guess oh it's just yeah I'm probably a little bit more I'm not it's really hard to say but 
I think I liked the poet poetic kind of side of what I was doing then in that I wasn't just straightforward but then I also think could be a bit more straightforward I've often found that, that maybe that can be alienating to people I'm not so inclined to be alienating as I used to be I think I used to want to be alienating in a way not not to make other people feel bad I just was very aloof I didn't really want to know anyone still kind of and a bit like that but now I sort of want to reach out a bit more through music and make people feel good rather than like explore the darkness yeah yeah totally <laughs> so. but as you say you were 19 so it yeah, was such you were a brooding. long time ago yes yeah. yeah, it's fine to brood absolutely when you're 19 and for the context of this where, where were you living was that Sydney. It was yeah. Sydney. And and the transition to Melbourne too. Well, so that came much later. The, yeah. the transition that's probably relevant to these kinds of early songs was Byron to Sydney. Yeah. Um, in that three of us are from Byron and we're not very Byron. And I think the whole identity that I tried to forge for myself as a 19-year-old was built on just being not Byron. You know, I've recently talked about this a fair bit because... It becomes clear when you're doing the solo thing and how different you are, but I can see it a bit more now of like my friends used to jokingly call me the only goth on the beach and that I hated the beach. And I just like, I mean, I used to go when I was much younger, but then teenage insecurity comes in and you're like, I want to be pale and I don't want people to see me in my bikinis and I want to listen to The Cure. And so I guess that comes out a lot in the Jezebels particularly early stuff. As a group, as you say, you all come from quite diverse starting points musically and interest-wise, but as you say, it just worked and you really... Sometimes. Oh, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and a lot of the time at the start, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted no, you. No, no, that's okay. But I, I guess maybe if there's anything you can offer there about just even trying to remember that chemistry that, that really did work, is that because... As you say, it was the three EPs. It wasn't an album yet. It was the, the reasons people get together to start bands. You're making music, you love it, and you're sort of thrilled by creating, really. Well, I mean, all of the things I was kind of cynically describing about my 19-year-old self are kind of, you know, would have applied to all of us and are the, probably the driving force as to why we made it work. Is like you kind of have this desire to change the world to a way in which you think it'll be better even if that's just aesthetically in a place where you'll make sense or your truth will make sense and to create something new and and you're really passionate and romantic about it and quite idealistic. So I think that energy was there and that's what drove the ability to, not just the energy but the novelty because when you start making something, it's like it's a magic thing and you're not so much in control like young wizards you know it's like stuff's coming out and it's like wow it's crazy and like you sort of tame it a bit but there's a sweet spot where you're not that good at taming it and I think people really like that about young bands is that they're kind of learning how to control their collective spell but they kind of suck at it and so it's a bit rough and it's not over cooked yep and there's always a magic to that yep. and they, there can be a magic to obviously like super intellectually well done stuff as well but you just you can overdo things yeah and when once you start realizing that like it's kind of a, a weird coincidence that these songs even work at all and then you kind of repeat that you go well maybe there is a formula to what works and then you can start to get a bit stale 
But I don't think we got particularly stale ever. We just kind of couldn't do it. Like sometimes we would just have times where like, oh, we, we just can't do this and you'd need to reinvent something, like get really obsessed with synths or something. So yeah, that's why our last album was just covered in synths because it was like it was just a different manifestation of people, you know, because you can't you can't ever recreate when you're 22. People no. try and yep. and they want you to as well. So why can't you make it like that? It's like, well, because I'm not, I'm not that person yeah. and neither are you and it would suck. Thanks for listening and do share the show with a friend who you know is a Hayley Mary or Jezebel's fan. They'll certainly get a kick out of it. If you have a guest suggestion, please email us, podcasts at mushroomgroup.com. I'm your host, Jane Rocker. Get me on Twitter at jbirdrocker or on Instagram, janerocker underscore. Editing and production by Courtney Carthy at The Mushroom Group. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark D'Angelo from Backlot Studios. Artwork for the show courtesy of Mushroom Creative House. Our executive producer is Matt Gadinsky. Legal assistance from Ben Strong and Kate Fury. <laughs>